Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Isaiah 29. And what I want to do is read through this entire chapter, and then we'll, uh, we'll pray and we'll break this, this thing down and, and really look at um, the heart of Isaiah's second message to Hezekiah and to his counselors and, um, you know, what it's about. Ah, Ariel. Ariel, the city where David encamped. Add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around, and I will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low. From the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. As when a hungry man dreams and behold, he is eating and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams and behold, he's drinking and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. He's closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men, when men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. And you, who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should save its maker? He did not make me. Or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field? And the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease. And all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. 
who by a word make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. Therefore thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed. No more shall his face grow pale, for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding, and those who murmur will accept instruction. Wow, this is great. Let's pray together. Father, what an awesome chapter of Scripture. What an amazing word this is. And it is amazing because it's your word. And Father, it is truth because you are a God of truth. And it's perfect because you are perfect. And Lord, we are grateful to you for this time to be able to dig into your holy writ. And I pray, Lord God, that you would meet us in your word tonight. I pray that by your spirit you would instruct us. I pray, Lord God, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand I pray, Lord God, that you would give us wills to, 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 to obey your, your, your teaching. I pray, Lord God, that you would just be glorified in this time that we are in your word together. I pray, Father, that you'd empty me of myself and fill me with your spirit and make me a, a jar of clay in your hand for your use. And Lord God, that you would exalt yourself as we, as we examine this text. I pray that you would turn our hearts and our minds away from the, the trials and the troubles and the fears of this world and lord god that you would help us to rest in you lord meet with us please teach us your truth i pray in christ's holy name amen all right well you know what beloved here's the thing again here's the the dovetailing the perfect dovetailing of isaiah and romans together right like so on sunday you know we we're talking about how vital it is that when a preacher stands to preach that he's got to proclaim the Word of God faithfully, correctly, and in the unction of the Holy Spirit, right? And that's the first part of the equation, right? That's the, that's the first part of the equation. It's foremost, but it's only the first half of it, right? The second half of the equation is this, is that the hearers need to do what? They need to receive the Word, and they need to receive it with faith, and they need to be doers of the Word and not just hearers of it, right? And so that twin reality really sets the stage for what we're looking at tonight. This is really, it's amazing how it dovetails so perfectly with what Isaiah is teaching tonight. In Isaiah chapter 29, this is Isaiah's second message now to Hezekiah, okay? It's his second message to Hezekiah and to his counselors. And as with all of Isaiah's prophecies, there are, there's like a near message. There's a message that's to Hezekiah and, 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 to his, and to his counselors in their current situation, but... There's also an application for us, right? There's an application for us in the church age and then in the age that is to come. So I want to remind just really quickly, very, very quickly, to rem- I just want us to remember the current situation that in which Isaiah is, is speaking these messages, okay? Hezekiah, you remember, has decided to stop paying tribute to Assyria and to assert um, Judah's independence, right? He's, he's making a break from everything that his father had done. And the problem is that this bold move has been precipitated not by faith and trust in Yahweh, right? But by a trust in a military political alliance with Egypt, right? With human wisdom. It's an alliance that God describes here as a covenant with death, an agreement with Sheol, basically to fill Sheol up, okay? The the place of the dead. And so... Isaiah is preaching a series of messages in order to call Hezekiah and his counselors 
and, and, and call you know, Judah to repentance and to faith in Yahweh alone. And in this text, what we're going to see is this. We're going to see a very plain statement of Yahweh's intentions. A very clear statement of what God is going to do. Okay? It's not hard to understand. It's not a great mystery, right? He's going to tell us what he's planning to do through Sennacherib's advance upon Judah and in his siege of Jerusalem. Okay? It's very straightforward. Much like the gospel is very, very straightforward, right? And the message is basically this. Hear the word of the Lord and choose how you're going to respond. Because here's the deal. How you choose, make sure you do so wisely because your choice has serious consequences, right? That's really the heart of what we're going to look at. And so this message from God, again, it's not mysterious, not difficult to understand. It's a plain statement of what God is bringing to pass. It's a clear statement of judgment and deliverance. So here's what we're going to do. Let's first look at God's description of these coming events, all right? The siege and the divine deliverance. So read these first eight verses with me again. Look at them again. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year. Let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around and will besiege you with towers and I will raise siege works against you and you will be brought low from the earth. You shall speak and from the dust, your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost and from the dust, your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her in her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. As when a hungry man dreams and behold, he's eating and awakes with his hunger not satisfied or as when a thirsty man dreams and behold, he is drinking and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched so shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against mount zion all right so what do we need to see here first thing i want us to see is this first thing we need to notice is that it's yahweh okay that is the one who is doing the speaking here right isaiah is just his instrument it is yahweh doing the talking okay and i want you to notice that in doing so he addresses jerusalem with a strange title ariel right most of you, when you heard that, probably thought of the Little Mermaid, right? Wrong, right? So it's a term that he uses here that's not found anywhere else in Isaiah, and it's not really even found anywhere else in Scripture. So it's got to be significant, right? We, we would assume that that would be significant, and it is. Here's what that word means. The word Ariel means altar hearth, okay? It means altar hearth. The altar hearth in the temple, you'll remember, was the place of the continual burning, where the atonement offerings were consumed, right? And that fire that consumed the sacrificial offerings as it regarded sacrifices for sin was really a picture of the holy wrath of God visited upon a substitute and not the sinner, right? Following with me so far? And so, you know, God's wrath against sin was pictured in this flame. And so God's word to them basically is this. Jerusalem, you continue in your half-hearted worship. Just add year to year, right? But it's going to be of no avail. 
It's going to be of no avail to you. And the reason why is because they were unfaithful. And as a result, their worship, though it might have been ritually correct. I want to emphasize that. Their heart was divided and they were unfaithful. And so while their worship might have been ritually correct, it was worthless. Okay? It was worthless. It was just going through the motions. And as a result... God says, Jerusalem would now become to him like an aerial. They would become to him like an altar hearth to God. And he plainly tells them that he's going to distress Jerusalem. That he's going to bring forth mourning and lamentation and heaviness and grieving upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they were going to become an aerial to him. They would experience, the city would, the unbelieving populace would experience the burning of God's indignation For their faithlessness. That's what he's saying. And in fact, in verse 3, we see depicted exactly what Sennacherib would do. This this is blow by blow exactly what Sennacherib attempted to do in seeking to destroy Jerusalem. He would encircle the city. He would erect towers from which archers would shoot arrows at the populace, right? He would rage siege works to either destroy the walls or make the walls worthless, right? The idea of like mounding dirt up against the wall. So you just walked right up the slope, hopped over the wall, and there you were, right? And so that was the whole thing. But again, I want you to notice, and we saw this last week, Sennacherib is not mentioned by name, is he? The Assyrians are not mentioned by name. God's the main actor here, isn't he? Jerusalem is supposed to see, to understand that behind Sennacherib, and the threat that he poses is actually, is actually God's judgment for their faithlessness. And in fact, in verse 4, Yahweh describes the terror that would grip their souls, right? Their imaginary strength would be revealed as abject weakness and helplessness. They would be humbled to the dust, okay? They would, um, it's a picture really of being completely overwhelmed. In fact, It's very picturesque, right? He says, you know, he describes their once proud voices. They would become as like the voice of a ghost, right? And it would become like a whisper. All their self-assurance, all of their self-stability, all of that would crumble in a moment. The content here of their speech isn't identified, right? We don't know exactly what would be, what, what speech would come forth, what whispers would come, but You know, I I agree with a lot of other commentators that say it's not beyond thinking that what that whisper would be would be a humble and a desperate request, a desperate whispering plea to Yahweh for deliverance, right? Judah had to come to the end of themselves. They had to see themselves, you know, on, on the edge of the precipice, if you will. They had to come to the end of their scheming and their self reliance before they could ever understand the gracious intervention of God, before they'd ever delight in it, before they would ever be amazed at it, they had to, they had to, you know, they had to be brought to nothing, right? Many of us can attest to that kind of experience, can't we? I mean, this is how God works, right? This is how God works. Many times with his people, all self-confidence has to be destroyed. He's got to take that away. All, all reliance, self-reliance has got to be exposed as worthless before we really trust fully and completely in the power and in the grace and in the mercy of Yahweh, right? Before we really trust in Him and what He alone can do. We just, we got to come to an end of ourselves. And, 
You know what? Here's the truth. As many people as there are in this room and, and as many Christians as there are in the world, there are that many variety of ways by which God orchestrates that before he brings us to his gracious intervention in our lives, right? And it was true of Judah. And the description here of Yahweh's intervention is, is remarkable. In verses 5 and 6, look at it again. He describes how he's going to deal with the threat of Assyria. Assyria seemed invincible. They were terrifying. But to God, they were nothing more than dust or chaff, right? The Lord of hosts, the one whom, whom Judah had foolishly spurned in favor of an alliance with Egypt. The one whom they had devalued and disregarded. Think about this now. He would come in might and power and rescue Jerusalem and display his irresistible might and his sovereign power. In fact, I want you to take note of the words that are used to describe Yahweh's deliverance. You see these lots of times in the Psalms. These words are very familiar kinds of words to talk about God's tremendous might and His sovereign you know, rule you know, and His power, His majesty. And they also speak really of the awe and the fear and the faith of which He's so deserving. But look at Him. He, says, he describes it as a thunder right, and an earthquake, this great noise, a whirlwind, a tempest, a devouring fire, right? God's going to destroy Assyria. And his sovereign plan is to use Assyria in their threat against Judah and then in their ultimate destruction by God to bring his true people to repentance, right? He's going to bring them to repentance through the display of his awesome might. He's going to bring them to, to repentance by, by forcing them and, and, and causing them to, 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 to turn to him in the face of what's taking place before he turns his judgment against their enemies, right? In fact, here's the, the cool description. He says, and all of Judah's enemies would vanish like they were only a dream. I love that picture, right? That they would just cease their threatening by the mighty hand of God. They would evaporate in an instant. Man, think about that. Like, think about the relief that comes with, that, that comes with that, right? You ever, have you had those dreams where you're in the middle of a dream and it seems exceedingly real? And it is really like distressing to your soul. And then you wake up and you're like, thank God that was only a dream. Right? I still have dreams that I have to go back at age 55 and finish my last year at Annapolis because it didn't count. Oh, it's horrible. It's a horrible dream. Right? <laughs> and, 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 and that's, you know, the idea is there's going to be this great sense of like, Deliverance and relief. And then notice what happens here. The imagery of the dream kind of turns in another direction. And it actually addresses Sennacherib and, and him as a representative of all of the ambitions of, of those who would destroy God's people. And it describes him as being frustrated, right? What seemed vividly real would be shown to be empty, right? Like a man that dreams that he's eating or drinking only to awaken to find that his hunger's not satisfied and his thirst isn't quenched. You ever done that? You ever been eating in your dream and woken up hungry? I have. When I was in Uganda, that happened, Right? Oh. I mean, really, that kind of stuff happens. Nobody, but here's the point. Like, nobody can overcome the people of God's own possession. Nobody. That's the point here, right? And we see it, which is cool, we see it played out in the near time with Sennacherib. Like, in a, in a couple of years, probably, from, from this message, maybe less, we read in Second Chronicles, for instance, 32, uh, verses 21 through 22, these words. And the Lord sent an angel 
who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he, Sennacherib, returned with shame of face to his own land. And when he came into the house of his God, some of his own sons struck him down there with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all his enemies, and he provided for them on every side. 2 Kings 19, verses 35-37 through expands on this account a little bit. This is one probably you're most familiar with. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Wow, that's a busy night's work, right? And when people arose early in the morning... Behold, there were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Right? This happened exactly, exactly how God said it would. Exactly how he said it would. Then that serves as an encouragement to us in our own age, doesn't it? I mean, it should. Here's the reality, right? God works in the same ways as He's always worked in the Word of God, right? And He brings tests and He brings trials of faith. Some outward, some inward. He brings tests of our allegiance and of our our devotion. For what purpose? Well, He does it not to destroy us, but to strengthen His people, right? He does it to purify His church. He does it to reveal the true and the false among the visible church. But the promise is this, is that His true people cannot and will not be overcome, right? God won't be left without a witness. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ made it very, very clear, didn't He? In Matthew 16, verse 18, when He said, I will build my church. And what? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, right? So after laying out what's to come, clearly, right? I mean, it's, it's a clear description. Yahweh then asks in effect, How are you going to respond to this? How are you going to respond to this clear message of looming judgment and deliverance only in me? How are you going to respond? And there's a choice here, right? That's before Judah. And it's presented in the first, very first part of verse 9. Look at it. Look at just the whole verse. He says, Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk but not with wine, stagger, but not with strong drink. What's he saying here? Now, the Hebrew at the beginning of this verse is is better rendered really as stop yourselves for a moment. Linger for a minute. Consider this message and be astonished. The idea is this. Think about what has just plainly been told you and don't just hear the words, but gain spiritual insight. Think about what you've just heard and trust in Yahweh and see the folly of your trust in Egypt and your unbelief in God. See the deliverance that God will provide for you and be astonished that He would be merciful and gracious to you because you don't deserve it. Don't let this go in one ear and out the other. Hear what God has said. Think about this rightly. I can't help but think of, you know, the words of Isaiah chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, right? You know them almost by heart. You know, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and you rebel, you will be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
What's the point? The point is God is ever gracious. Respond to Him. Respond to His words of truth. Or take the other tack. Blind yourselves and be blind. The other option here is just carelessly and willfully refuse to hear the truth and make yourself willingly blind. But to choose that option, as he's going to describe here, will decrease the chance of you ever thinking clearly or finding the right way. In fact, it'll, be, it'll lead to judicial blindness. And that blindness will lead to, to drunkenness and staggering. What he's talking about there is muddled thinking, aimless wandering, not as a result of wine or, or strong drink, but as a result of the, of the refusal of God's word. And that is exceedingly dangerous. Why? Because God often confirms people in their willful blindness. Read Romans 1. Right? In fact, as commentator Alec Motyer put it very well, he said, determined spiritual insensitivity soon becomes judicial spiritual deprivation. In fact, notice the progression here in verses 10 through 12. He says, For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep, and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it's sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. For those who willingly blind themselves to the plain truth of God, what does the Lord do? He pours out a spirit of deep sleep. In other words, the mind loses its clarity. It loses its ability to, 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 to be sensitive. The thinking becomes scrambled and, and confused. There's no real logic, no coherent thinking about reality. And then, the very means of spiritual enlightenment are removed. The prophets in the seers, right? No indication here that they're false prophets or false seers. Those who've been appointed to receive and communicate divine truth are taken away. There's a famine of the word of the Lord. And in verses 11 and 12, that point's really brought home. Here's what, here's what Isaiah is getting at. Here's, the, here's what the Lord is, is saying. Because of the spiritual lethargy and indifference, because of the willing refusal to hear God, right? His divine truth, the ways of God, His purpose, His salvation, His sovereign glory. Everything of the Lord will become like a sealed book. The man who, who can read is just too lazy and disinterested to break the seal and read it. And the man who cannot read can't be bothered to find somebody who can. And it sounds very much like the multitudes in our own age who refuse to love the truth and so be saved, right? Paul talks about those people in Second Corinthians or Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses eleven and twelve, and he says, Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may not so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So what is God to do? What's what's he to do? If he's going to rescue his chosen people, what what must God do to rescue his chosen people from themselves? And the Lord said, verse 13 and 14, and the Lord said, because this people Draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. 
And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. This is cool, man. This is, this is the glory of God's grace. The only way to counter right, the spiritual lethargy and the faithlessness of Judah was to act in undeniable power. Judah had deceived themselves into thinking that religious talk and religious sentiment and religious ritual equaled real faith, right? Paying lip service to God with hearts that were unaffected and that were far off from God. Their worship, the idea of the proper fear of the Lord, had been reduced to outward actions, right, that were absent any spiritual reality. In fact, those are the very same words, aren't they, that the Lord Jesus Christ used to describe who? The Pharisees. Judah and the Pharisees after them believed that the externals of religious observance could protect them from God's judgment, just as there are many who believe that today. Yahweh has to do something. He must do something awesome, something wonderful, so that the wisdom of the wise men, Hezekiah's counselors, would come to nothing. And so that the supposed discernment of the discerning men would be proven to be worthless. And that's exactly what he was doing. And that's always God's way. Truth is, we know this, mankind regards himself far too highly, doesn't he? He trusts in his own wisdom implicitly. We make ourselves the authority. And so, we must be humble to see that salvation and life is only of the Lord. In fact, Paul quotes, right, from verse 14 and expands on it. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 19 through 24, there he says these words, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, right? This is how God works. The, the hubris and the foolish self-reliance of fallen men has, have always been some of his chief and greatest enemies throughout the ages. Isn't that true? Our, our hubris, our pride, always thinking that we know better. Salvation is only and ever from the Lord. And fallen human wisdom and discernment can't offer anything. God makes foolish the wisdom of man through his mighty acts of salvation in delivering Judah from Sennacherib, but ultimately, obviously, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and in order to be saved, we have to see that. And Judah's got to see that as well. And so, for that reason, Yahweh, through Isaiah, commands Judah, really, to consider their ways. Look at it. The leaders in Jerusalem, what had they done? Well, they'd aligned themselves with fallen and reckless wisdom of the world. They pursued a course that they knew God would not approve of, that they knew God condemned, and that's why... They foolishly convinced themselves that God really didn't see what they were doing. Look at verse 15. Ah, you who hide deep 
from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? God is like, he's calling them out. Like, look, you guys are deluding yourselves, right? In all their planning and their maneuvering, they acted as if God was blind, like God was ignorant, like they were pulling one over on God. In order to justify their actions, they had to convince themselves that their wisdom was best and that God really didn't know the best way to deal with the situation and that really God was unaware of all their schemings. That's the way of fallen men, isn't it? That's the way of governments of fallen men, is it not? But God's not blind. In fact, his rebuke is sharp. Look at this. Verse 16. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Remember, we looked at this in Romans, right? When, when Paul is expressing the glory of God's sovereignty, right? And in essence, God is saying to them, look, you, you have it all reversed here. It's completely upside down. Judah needs to remember her place. They need to understand who God is and who they are not. God says, you know, I'm the potter, you're the clay. He does as he wishes. And, and what, what can we say back to him? You're not your own. You're not self-existent. Only God is. You're not self-sustaining. Only God is. You need to repent and return to reality. He knows exactly what he's doing. God does. And he needs no help. Look at verses 17 through 19. It's great. He says, Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field will be regarded as a force? He's speaking there of the growth of his remnant. He says, In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and their darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. In a very picturesque way, this is great. The Lord describes the deliverance that He will accomplish and that it's for the sake of His remnant and that the remnant will grow and be vindicated for their faith in the Almighty God of heaven and earth. At His deliverance, right? At that day, the meek, who are they? Those are the ones who entrust themselves wholly to the Lord and don't, who do not strive in their own power. They, he says, will be overjoyed with fresh joy. In other words, they'll be given greater reasons to worship the Lord. Because their faith that they have held on to in, in the God who promises, man, they will see God work in ways that they hoped and believed he would. Right? And, and, he, and he describes the poor, the, the downtrodden, the remnant that's been treated with disdain. They will exult in the Holy One of Israel for His work of salvation. And as a result of that, the deaf, those who had refused to hear the truth of God before by His grace, will now have their ears opened. And those who are blind in the, in the gloom and in the darkness of unbelief, by God's grace, they'll sh- they, they will see. But not all. Not all. Some would remain unmoved by the Lord's obvious intervention. Despite the very clear, powerful work of the Lord, there would be some that would say, well, the reason we're good is because of our alliance with Egypt. That's why we escaped the noose. 
And here's God's evaluation. Verses 20 and 21. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease. And all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. This is powerful. The ruthless and the scoffer, those who desire, whose desire is evil, who watch and wait for opportunities to do it. Those who mistreat the people of God and who scoff at the Lord. Their end is this. They're going to be cut off. They'll be exposed and they will suffer the consequences of their haughty disregard of God and their persecution of the righteous. They will be cut off. They will go into eternal perdition. In their continued unbelief and their evil actions, they will be cut off from the Lord and condemned forever. In fact, I want you to see how he describes the ruthless and the scoffer. He does it with three images, right? He describes them first as those who by a word make a man out to be an offender. What's the idea there? The idea is, is that these are the guys who falsely accuse the faithful and who denigrate those who dare to trust in the Lord and who make them out to somehow be evildoers. He describes them as those who lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate. The idea here is those who plot and scheme to silence and discredit those who speak the truth of God. Those who confront faithlessness and iniquity among the people. The judges would sit at the gate, right? And these are, the idea is the people that speak the truth, right? They would plot against them and attempt to silence the truth speaker and make him out to be an outsider and a troublemaker. And he describes them as those who, with an empty plea, turn aside him who is in the right. The idea is those who use empty and spurious, emotional and irrational pleas, right? Argue from emotion, fine sounding and appealing words that are empty of reason and truth in order to sway the public opinion away from the Lord. And we're familiar with all of those images in our own day, in our society, but tragically in the visible church as well. And yet all these will be cut off. They'll be revealed to be evil and opposed to God and to His Word. And meanwhile, the people of God will be vindicated for their faith, for their trust, for their hope in God. In fact, I love this because... You know, later on, Isaiah will say, will give us this promise of God that no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the, of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. And the psalmist says in Psalm 135, verses 13 and 14, Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants. And then we come to Isaiah's conclusion to his message, to his sermon. And it starts in verse 22. Look at it. Isaiah declares, Therefore thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall no more be ashamed. No more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. 
This is really pretty cool. It's really the Lord offering his own commentary on what he's going to do with Judah through this Assyrian siege. The fruit that's going to be born through all of this. And it's bigger than Judah would have thought. Look at this. The Lord speaks of Abraham first as the one whom he redeemed. That phrase is unique to this verse. Nowhere else is Abraham called, referred to as the one whom God redeemed. So what's the point? The point here is that God had made a beginning with Abraham, right? He'd made a covenant with Abraham that he was going to bring to full fruition. In other words, what God began with Abraham would not fail no matter what. Not even the rebelliousness of the nation of Israel. And then he presents this really compelling picture. It's really cool. Jacob is, is, is envisioned here, right? He's portrayed as sort of an anxious spectator of everything that has occurred with his descendants. And he's been appalled and ashamed at the great number of unbelieving, you know, that have, that have come forth from him. And, but when he sees what the Lord has wrought through his divine intervention, when he sees the creation of a people who are the works of Yahweh's hands, right? The fruit of his grace and his mercy. When Jacob sees how the Lord has worked in Jacob's descendants in the very same way in which he worked in Jacob's own life. Making them to sanctify the name of the Lord. Making them to honor him as holy as Jacob learned to do. And when they stand in awe of the God of Israel and live in his presence as Jacob did and does so even right now, right? The, the Lord is not the Lord of the dead, but the Lord of the living. When Jacob sees those who once went astray, now coming to spiritual understanding, and those who murmured, now receiving instruction, <laughs> and children of Jacob, right? He was a murmurer and a, and a, and a, and a, and one who went astray, right? When he sees all that, Jacob will have no reason, will no longer have any reason to be ashamed and dismayed through God's discipline of Judah, through the threat of Assyria, and through his deliverance, there will be souls added to God's remnant. And from that remnant, praise God, will come the Messiah who will bring this picture of redemption to its absolute fullness. That's the idea. And of course, through Christ we see this working itself out, right, in our own day, in the age of gospel preaching and proclamation, in the spreading of God's glory throughout the earth, those going astray and who have been murmurers, now all of a sudden, you know, coming to understanding and accepting instruction and being redeemed and being now the work of God's gracious hands. We see it happening now. God adding to His remnant, bringing the spiritual children of Abraham and Jacob to a saving knowledge of His Son, to an understanding of His sovereign majesty and His glory, conquering rebel souls, causing them to receive His instruction and be saved. In the midst of a rebellious world, right? God hasn't just like thrown in the towel, right? And neither is He sitting on His throne wringing His hands. He's carrying out exactly what He's decreed from the beginning. He's seeking and saving His people whom He's chosen through a plain and open declaration of all that He has done, what He will do, and how we must respond. Right? Because salvation is ever and only what? Of the Lord. This is really awesome. This, this chapter is so amazing. It really is. Man, talk about a microcosm of the way God works. It's awesome.
Let's pray. Father, the more that we meet with you in your word, the more astonished and amazed and in awe we are of you, of your matchless grace and of your sovereign mercy, of the way, Lord God, that you orchestrate all things in the lives of those whom you have chosen to point us to you. And you won't lose a one. You won't lose a one. We're thankful in the way that you work. You, How plainly you spoke to the people of Judah. How plainly you speak through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we, we're amazed. We're amazed that not only that you would save sinners like us, but that you have. And not only that, Lord, but that you have transformed our hearts that were once deceitful and desperately wicked. And that's all. And you have given us hearts of flesh and you've written your word upon it. You've given us your spirit and you have redeemed us through the saving work of the one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself and came in the likeness of sinful men. Lord, we stand in awe of you. And I pray the more that we consider, like really consider the wondrous truths that are in your word, and, and especially tonight as we've looked at Isaiah 29, I, I pray that you would arrest our hearts more and more. I praise you, God. I thank you for your, your good gift of your holy word. Every good gift that we have, purchased by the blood of Christ, but chiefly, redemption and reconciliation with you. Let that be the heart song of us as your people. And may you be glorified in us as we, Father, press on and continue to desire to lay hold of Christ for that for which he's laid hold of us. Love you, and we're grateful to you for this time. And I pray all of these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.